Let's pray together. Father, we, we bless your name today. We bless you for your word. Your word that reveals you to us. Your word that gives us glimpses into your nature and your character. Your word that tells us of your salvation. But Lord, when we bless you and praise you for your word, we would be remiss if we did not also praise you for your word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son that you freely gave to us, that in him all of your promises would find their yes and their amen. Lord, that in Jesus the promises of salvation that you made have borne fruit. The promises of redemption that you gave to your people are made real. And so, Lord, as we think about these things today, I pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence that, Lord, we would know and believe that in Jesus Christ we have redemption and we have life. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, for forgiving us our trespasses. Lord, we pray that you would help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. That, Lord, we would not be people who hold grudges or take offense. But Lord, that we would be people who overlook offenses that are quick to show forgiveness. Because you, Lord, were quick to forgive us. Lord, as we approach your word today, I pray, Lord, that together you would show us your ways. That, Lord, you in our text would help us to see Christ and him crucified. Help us, Lord, to love you, to rejoice in you, to delight in you alone. Because there is no other hope for us but Jesus. We pray these things in his name and for his glory forever. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is where we will be today. The scriptures have been given to us for many things. Chief among them, they've been given to us to reveal the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But once the gospel has taken hold of us, once the Lord has regenerated us and brought us to life in Jesus... What then? What does our life then look like? This is an area that the scriptures have much to say in, provided that we understand them properly. Much has been said about the division of the law and the gospel. 
Some people say, well, you need the law and the gospel. Well, Paul very adamantly in the book of Galatians argues against that and says that the gospel plus anything else is no gospel at all. Some would go to the other extreme and say, you don't need the law at all. Once you have Jesus, nothing else that you do is relevant. Nothing else that you do matters. You are forgiven. Do what you want. Say what you want. Go where you want. There are no limits, no boundaries, because it's all covered by the blood. Well, the scriptures speak against that as well. The Lord says, be holy as I am holy. And Jesus reiterates that for us in the New Testament. And so the truth of the matter is that even for those who have been forgiven in Christ, who recognize that their works have no saving value for them, we are still called to do what is right according to God's word. This is vital for us to understand because our outward lives are indicators of the inward change of regeneration and sanctification that the Lord is working in us. Our outward actions do not work in an inward sense to make us righteous. But instead... The righteousness that the Lord gives us works in an outward sense to make our outward lives more righteous and holy. Jesus uses the imagery of paths and gates to help us to grasp these concepts. Over in Matthew chapter 7, he says, it's, he's, Jesus says this, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You see, too many people believe that once you give your life to Jesus, that's the end of your obligation. And if you walked around in our community and walked up and down the roads and knocked on people's doors and you said to them, hey, do you know where you're going to go when you die? The vast majority of them would say, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. Because when I was a little boy, I went to church at this church or that church, maybe even this church right here. And I prayed a prayer and gave my life to Jesus. Okay. And what, what's your life looked like since then? Oh, well, you know, church isn't really my thing. I got other obligations, other priorities. I, I just kind of do my own thing. But me and God are good. The truth of the matter is, there is no biblical category for someone who gives their life to Jesus and then lives however they please. That doesn't exist. This imagery that Jesus uses in Matthew 7 should help us to understand that, that our lives are us going along this path toward one of these gates. And it's not that your actions determine what path you are on. It's that whether or not you are truly saved 
determines what path you are on. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what does a life that is truly devoted to God entail? What does that life actually look like? Well, in Psalm 16, David gives us some glimpses of this life. He also uses imagery of a path like Jesus, showing us that the Lord makes known to his people the path of life. As we consider this text today, we will seek to discover what it looks like to walk the path of life. And what I am praying for and have been praying for this week as I have been preparing this message is that the Lord will grow these markers in our lives, in my life and in yours. So let's look together at Psalm 16, and we'll first look at the first three verses where we will see commitment, commitment. If you got a bulletin when you came in or one of our sermon listening guides, you'll see that we have three points this morning, and that's our first one, commitment. So let's read Psalm 16, verses 1, 2, and 3. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In the first three verses of Psalm 16, we see three different commitments. The first commitment that we see, David points us to God's commitment to his people. God's commitment to his people there in verse 1. David calls out to God, preserve me, O God. Uphold my life, O God. Keep me from destruction. David is a man who was known for his fighting skills, for his military prowess. He was known as a great warrior. Even when he was young, he was out in the fields keeping watch over his father's flocks, and he would regularly encounter wild animals. And he would either scare them away or kill them. He was a man of courage and strength. But even David, in all of his strength and military skill, he understood that unless the Lord was with him, he had no hope of survival. David could have been a man who leaned upon his own skills, his own strength. He could have said, I can handle these things myself. I'm a man. But David's cries throughout the Psalms are cries to the Lord to help him, to preserve him, to uphold his life, to be his salvation. And what's interesting about David's cry to the Lord here that illustrates God's commitment is that this is not an uncertain cry. This is a cry that is marked by a recognition that God will do this. David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David essentially says to the Lord, uphold my life, God, because I take refuge in you. You are my shelter. Because David knows that the Lord is his safety and his security and his strength, he knows that the Lord is committed to him. 
David cries out to the Lord for help because he knows that the Lord will answer. He knows that the Lord is his refuge. Too often, we come to the Lord as a last resort. We try to fix things ourselves. We try our own way. We try our own way of thinking. We think we have good ideas. We think we're strong enough to take on the challenges that are in front of us. Brothers and sisters, I know that for those of us who respond in these ways, I know that what you think is happening, what you think is happening is that you are doing God a favor. You think, well, God, I'm not going to trouble God with this when I can handle it myself. God has given me what I need. What you need to recognize, what all of us need to recognize, is that when we use God as our last resort, when everything else fails, we finally turn to the Lord. What that really is showing is that we don't have faith in God. Because, brothers and sisters, God is for us. He is for us. He is on our side. He wants good for us. Not only does he want good for us, but he is working good for us. Even in moments where things are painful and chaotic and hard and the struggle is there, God is working for our good. And when we don't recognize the Lord's commitment to us, when we seek him last for help, What we're saying is, I don't really believe that God is for me. When things get hard, we immediately believe that God has abandoned us, rather than recognizing that even the hard parts of our lives are for our good by growing us in godliness and in faith. And so David begins Psalm 16 by pointing us to the Lord's commitment to his people. The second thing that David shows is his commitment to the Lord. In verse 2, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God's people rightly recognize that they have no good either in themselves or in their lives that comes apart from God. Every good and perfect gift is from God. That is true for believers and for non-believers. The Bible tells us that God causes rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Even unbelievers are given good gifts from the Lord. Those good gifts are intended to turn our hearts and our minds toward God. Too often, we begin to idolize the gift rather than the giver. Too often, we take the good things that God has given us and we twist them into wicked things that are unrecognizable. Think about it. Think about what sins you know of and recognize how they are taking a good thing that God gave us and twisting it into something wicked. One of the most prevalent sins, not just in our society, but in all societies, is sexual sin. 
Sexual intimacy with your spouse is a tremendously good gift from God. But it is a good gift from God intended to be enjoyed in a specific context. But what humanity has done is taken a good gift from God, ripped it out of its context, and used it in all sorts of wicked ways. But the people of God understand that we have no good apart from Him. When we truly understand that the good in us and the good in our lives comes from God and God alone, it leads us to cling to the Lord, knowing that we have desperate need. I can think of, and I'm sure you can too, we can think of many people, who, maybe even you, who have rested in your gifts from God rather than clinging to Him. Who have said, well, who's got it better than me? Nobody. I've got a lovely spouse, I've got a wonderful family, I've got a job that's secure, we've got a nice home, everything is going really well. So what need do I have? When we need to recognize that like Job, all those things could be gone, just like that. And where is your faith then? One of the great things about the book of Job is that it shows us how a man who was a righteous man, who was a good man, who did not sin against the Lord in the immediate aftermath of losing everything, then spends the next 30 chapters sinning against the Lord. Because what is revealed is that Job placed a lot more faith in the gifts of God than in God himself. And he proceeded to say that he knew better than God. He should just die. Why did God even make me, why did God ever bring me into life if this is what was going to happen? Far too often we are like Job, who when things are good, we've got plenty faith. We've got plenty righteousness. And then when things start to crack, all of a sudden it all goes out the window. We need God. He is the source of our own goodness. He is the source of the good things in our lives. And we must resist the temptation of our flesh to tell us that we are the source of good. One of the, one of the things that has infested the modern church is this belief in the idea of positive manifestation. If you believe good things will happen, then they will that's baloney. That's not real. But I've heard it said in sermons from pulpits as though it's a biblical concept. All you have to do is just speak it into existence and all the good things will come your way. It's not true. The only way, the only way that good things come your way is for them to come from the Lord and for him to reshape our understanding of what is good. Because as the people of God, we should rightly recognize 
that even our righteousness, the best we have to offer, is like filthy rags before a holy, perfect God. And so David says to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. So we see God's commitment to his people. We see our commitment to God. The third thing that we see is that David reminds us that those who love God are committed to God's people. They're committed to God's people. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Those people who are committed to God and to the things of God, his saints, they are the ones that David recognizes as being the excellent ones. Those are the ones in whom David delights. It's not the people who flatter David. This is a man who has had songs sung about him. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I guarantee you that there were plenty of people who were looking to blow smoke up David's skirt. Who were willing to tell David how awesome and wonderful and great he was. And David doesn't say, the people who say how great I am, that's where my delight is. David doesn't say that his delight is in the people who give him assistance in this life. The ones who help him, who give him gifts, the ones who bless him with donations. That's not where his delight is found. He also doesn't say that his delight is found in those who are related to him by blood. His delight is not found in his earthly family. But instead, those who love the Lord are the ones in whom David And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this how we view the people of God? This is supposed to be our family. This is supposed to be the people in whom we delight. More so even than our own blood relationships. This is where we should find delight. We should commit ourselves to God because God has committed himself to us and we should commit ourselves to God's people. We cannot, if we say we love God, forsake the saints of God or even half-heartedly commit ourselves to the saints of God. For the Christian, this is why the church is so essential and so vital because it is made up of the saints of God. And David doesn't say, I really enjoy their company from time to time. David doesn't say, I really enjoy getting together with them once a week. David says that the saints in the land are in whom is all his delight. We need to recognize the closest we will come to the presence of God in this life, is gathering with the people of God. That's the closest we come to the presence of God in this life, is to be with his people. Sometimes, when people want to get a message to me, 
And for whatever reason, they don't want to call me or text me. I'm not sure why, but sometimes that happens. So you know what they do? They reach out to my wife. She has nothing going on. She's, she's free all the time, right? And so they, they reach out to her and they say, hey, can you please tell Corey blank? Because they rightly understand that she is connected to me. She is my bride. She is unified with me. Now, I just want to let you know, if that's your way of getting things to me, you probably shouldn't do that. Because between our three children, sometimes what you say vanishes into the ether. Okay, so if you want to tell me something, just tell me, just FYI. But, but you understand what I'm saying here, right? You recognize that my wife is connected to me. Well, brothers and sisters, the reason that it's not an accident that the Bible uses the imagery of the bride of Christ in reference to his church. And so we commit ourselves to the people of God because that is a way that we are committed to the Lord by committing to his people. And not only does the path of life require commitment, but it also requires our contentment. Our contentment. Let's read verses 4 through 7 of Psalm 16. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. One of the things that the scriptures talk about is the seeming reality that those who reject the Lord are also the ones who are blessed. That those who do wicked things seem to prosper. In Psalm, in Psalm 37, 7, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Over in Psalm 92, 7, it says, Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers evil flourish. The Bible paints a picture, and, and we've seen this with our own eyes, of people who reject the Lord, their lives don't seem to be negatively impacted. If you went down a list of the people who are financially flourishing in the world today, I would bet that the percentage of those who are actual Christians is infinitesimally small, if existent at all. Some of the richest men in the world are not, by any definition, righteous men who love the Lord. And so the question is, well, what, what good is it to serve the Lord? If I ignore God, I could be wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I could prosper in all these ways. Psalm 16 doesn't directly, doesn't directly make mention of this, excuse me, but it's undoubtedly on David's mind as he speaks of rejecting the ways of those who worship other gods. 
And brothers and sisters, that is what sinners are ultimately doing. They may not realize it. They may not be openly worshiping idols, but they are worshiping idols. They have rejected the one true God in favor of a God of their own making. They are just like the ones that David speaks of here in Psalm 16.4. Those who run after another God. David recognizes that while it may not appear that way, and it may never appear that way in this life, their sorrows will multiply and their destruction is sure. See, I just read Psalm 92.7. I read the first part of that verse, but I want you to hear the back half of it. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. You see, as the people of God who understand God's word, who have been changed by the Holy Spirit, we recognize that despite what looks like earthly prosperity, their end is destruction for those who do not love and serve and commit themselves to the Lord. So what David does instead is he devotes himself to being content in the Lord and in what the Lord has allotted to him. David says in verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You see, we recognize or we should, as David does, that in God, we have all that we need. And I want you to hear me really clearly here. I am not talking about physical needs. I'm not talking about that. I am not saying, as long as you love Jesus, you're always going to have food to eat and a bed to sleep in and clothes to wear. That's not what I'm saying to you. What I am saying to you is this. If all of those things disappear tomorrow, we have what we need because we have Christ. That is all we need. Because if you don't have food, you know what happens? You'll die. And if you are in Christ, you go to be with God. If you don't have a warm home to sleep in tomorrow night, there's a very strong possibility that you'll die. It's going to be very cold. And if you die and you're in Christ, you have all you need. We, do, we should not mistake what David is teaching here to say, love the Lord and you always have physical blessings. That is a wicked lie that has led so many people to destruction. Don't fall victim to that. David says, the Lord holds his lot. In other words, he is saying that David's station in life is ultimately God's doing. Are you rich? That's because God did it. Are you less than rich? That's because God did it. Our station in life is God's doing. He holds our lot. So, if we understand that 
and also understand that God is for us, then no matter what our station in life is, we can be content because we have what we need. David then says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The inheritance being an earthly one is not what's in view here, I don't think. David's life was not without trouble or sorrow, but he is still recognizing the goodness of God and the gifts that he has been given. He is content, as I said before, because he trusts in God's goodness. David recognizes that his inheritance is God himself. That's what he gains. He can lose the whole world, but he has God. David is also content in God's counsel and instruction. In verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and then I'd also, my heart instructs me. The reference to David's heart here is not the same way that we would use that terminology, but it, it actually is rooted in an understanding that it is God who moves in his heart. That's what he's saying here. David's not saying, I follow my heart because my heart tells me the right thing to do in the same way that we would say that. David is saying God moves in his inmost being to move him in the right direction. We would understand this more in line with our conscience, for example, the conviction of the spirit that works within us to show us what is right and what is wrong. God is giving to David all that he needs, both in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense. That's what David is referencing here. One of the hallmarks of the modern age is that we always want more. We always want more. What we have is never enough. One of the things that both fascinates and infuriates me about professional athletes is that they fight over money. That is so absurd. How, how dare you offer me a contract that's only $185 million? I want $190 million. Really? Really? What is it you need that $185 million isn't going to give you? It's absurd. But it is a byproduct of the way that modern humans think. We want more. And one of the things that has happened is that has, that has bled over into our spiritual life. The reason that anti-biblical charismatic beliefs have exploded in the last 100 years is because of the craving for more. More revelation, more emotion, more self-fulfillment, more gifts, more, more, more. The Bible isn't enough. I need more. The church isn't enough. I need more. But the path of life is marked by contentment. It's marked by contentment. To say what God has given is more than enough. 
What the Lord has given is all sufficient. We need to stop searching for more and rejoice that God has already given us all we need. And so the path of life is marked by commitment. It's filled with contentment. And it's also marked by confidence. It's marked by confidence. Let's read verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because of the Lord's commitment to David and David's subsequent commitment to the Lord, he knows that he will not be shaken by the wickedness of evil men. And because of that, he has a glad heart. No matter what comes David's way, he knows that he stands secure because of God. David likely wrote this psalm in the aftermath of Saul's death. The man who has been hunting him, trying to kill him, is now dead. His greatest enemy is no longer a threat. And so here David is saying, the Lord has protected me. And he is saying that his heart will not, he will not be shaken because the Lord is with him. His whole being rejoices. What an incredible confidence in God's goodness this is. To rejoice in the face of uncertainty, knowing that we are secure in God. You see, David knows that God will not abandon him. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David knows that no matter what happens... God is not just going to cut him loose and let him die. This path of life that we've been talking about, the hard way that leads to salvation by the narrow gate, it's the Lord who makes it known. That's what David says in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. This is not something that we will simply stumble upon on our own. We are not somehow morally good and drifting toward godliness. We're not even morally neutral. On our own, we gravitate toward, jump upon, and delight in the wide path that leads to destruction. The easy way. That's the way that we go in our flesh. The only way that we see the path of life. The only way is for God to reveal it to us. Because we do not have hearts to love him. We do not have ears to hear the truth. We do not have eyes to see reality. We are incapable. But David understands that it is God who has made it known. And where does that path lead? It leads to God's presence. 
where there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, the so-called sacrifices of this life, the ones that we make for the sake of godliness, are going to be repaid in an infinite way by the pleasures of God. As hard as this life is, when you are devoted to Jesus Christ and living righteously, as hard as it is, as much as you have to give up, life with God is infinitely sweet. But the psalm seems to indicate that there's a catch. Throughout it, it's kind of littered with language like, I have set the Lord before me. I say to the Lord, I will not go after those who worship idols. It, it seems to be heavily tinged with do this and live. There's a problem. We can't do this. We can't. Even David couldn't. I mentioned earlier that David knew that he would not be shaken by wicked men. But in fact, the only thing that ultimately shook David was the wickedness of his own heart. David stopped setting the Lord before himself and set his desires for women in that place. And when he did that, his life unraveled and his family fell apart. But even when David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba, by murdering her husband Uriah, David still had confidence in the Lord. In 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23, the Lord's judgment upon David for his sin is that the child that he had conceived with Bathsheba was going to die. And David had sought prayer trying to ask the Lord to save the child's life. And it didn't happen. The baby died. And in 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23, you find this. He said, he being David, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Even in the aftermath of David's sin, David still had confidence that he would be reunited with his son in the presence of God. He still believed that. Where does that confidence come from? How could David have that confidence? He failed. The confidence comes from the fact that God is first committed to us, not the other way around. We are fickle, sinful beings 
who renege in our promises and fail in our commitments. But God does not. God does not. He does not go back on his word. He does not fail to keep his promises. He does what he commits to. And because the Lord has committed himself to his people, our confidence remains. You see, there is a fourth C that we must consider this morning. And that's Christ. That's the fourth C. Like all of Scripture, this psalm is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. It's why David can write things like, you won't let your Holy One see corruption, when David most assuredly did see corruption. It's because it's only Jesus who truly accomplishes the things we see laid out in this psalm. It's only Jesus. Peter makes explicit reference to this in his sermon on Pentecost. Over in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read. You can turn there or just listen carefully as I read. But starting in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, it says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my, tongue was, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter, at Pentecost, proclaiming the gospel, quotes the Greek translation of Psalm 16. And he says, David wrote these things about Jesus. He was talking about Jesus. We, on our own, just like David, cannot stay on the path of life. Our flesh is wayward and our hearts are fickle. So when Psalm 16 says that in God's presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, we understand that this is saying that our hope and our joy and our contentment and our confidence and our very life comes from Jesus Christ. 
Who is in the presence of God? Who is seated at the right hand of God? It doesn't get much more explicit than that. That David concludes this psalm by saying at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Peter in his sermon at Pentecost quotes this passage and then explicitly says, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want joy and pleasure, seek Jesus Christ. If you want life, trust Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus can you find fullness of joy. Only in him can your flesh dwell secure. Only in him do we find salvation. Brothers and sisters, let's commit ourselves anew to walking the path of life that Jesus perfectly obeyed and fulfilled for us. And let's commit ourselves to having commitment to God and to one another, to being content with what the Lord has given us. And we can have confidence that God is for us and that we will be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises that you have given to us in your word. Lord, for the ways that you have shown us that it is Christ and Christ alone who gives us life. Lord, I pray that we, as your people, would devote ourselves to walking righteously in this life. That we would commit ourselves to you and to one another. That we would be content with what you have given us. And Lord, that you would give us confidence. And Lord, I pray today for any one of us who does not know Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, today that you would save them. That they would know the truth and be set free. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.